It's always good to pray. We do a lot of praying around here, uh, especially before our service starts. And, um, you know, our leadership prays, and, and we just keep um, just bringing it all before God. And um, we did that as well this morning. And I was sharing with the, the church leadership that, you know, of our whole series that we're going through uh, in uh, exploring the um, essential theological issues as revealed in the greatest story ever told. That's our series. It's called Epic. And um, you, know, you see it right there. And so as we do that, there are many different things that we're looking at and uh, what it means to... Um, what it means to to know God, to learn about Him, to understand Him. But, you know, there's a whole story that's told from Genesis to Revelation. And it is, um, it's an amazing story. It's the most amazing story ever told and ever written. But yet, there are some foundational truths that we cannot miss as we flow through that story. And so, that was the idea behind this, this sermon series, which will take us just up until the new year that we would look at the essential doctrines or the essential theological beliefs of the Christian church throughout church history, but we look at them in the flow of this story. And so that's why we started with looking at the Bible and bibliology, because that is where we get our story from. And so we looked at the ideas of inerrancy and what does it mean that we believe the Bible has no errors and that it was inspired. And then, of course, we started to look at the different characters in our story, if you will. And we were introduced to God the Father. We looked at his attributes. And then, of course, we looked at the Holy Spirit, also God, and how we cannot live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. We were also introduced to the angels and demons and, of course, to our enemy, Satan. And we looked at the reality of that and what that means and and, and the role that they play in our lives as believers and in this world. And then, of course, we looked at ourselves. Right? We looked at ourselves. That was anthropology. We looked at the humankind and the human condition. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? You remember that? Uh, and so where does that bring us? And so we learned last week about sin. And that was, um, that was exciting, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. But it was important. But why? Because today is the exciting part in that sense, right? It's just sort of part two of that. Because in order for us to understand what we're looking at today, which is the doctrine of salvation, it's called soteriology, is all these words, these um, fancy theological words, they come from the Greek uh, words. And so soteriology comes from the Greek word for sin, uh, I mean for salvation. And so it is the idea of the study of salvation. How do we get saved? What does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? And so that's what we're looking at today. So we had to talk about sin last week, right? So we could know what we're being saved from. And so today, um, I was telling some people earlier that I believe in our whole study, there is no more important doctrine than the doctrine of salvation. And hopefully that makes sense to you. Now, we need all of the others to put it all together. They are all extremely important. That's why we're looking at them. They build on one another. They all work together. But if we say that the doctrine of salvation, the theological understanding of how a person is reconciled to God, if we understand the, the consequences are our eternal destiny, then what can be more important than that? And so I am going to ask that you just pay special attention to the scriptures today. Hopefully you have one of those notebooks that we provide and you can write down a bunch of scriptures we can't look at all of them or read all of them, 
but there'll be a bunch that I'll give you, especially towards the end. We'll have some on the screen as well. But, you know, again, we had to look last week in the order of telling our story at what caused the drama. If we knew where the story came from and it had its beginnings and we were introduced to all of these characters, us being a part of that, we know from history that every great story, every great epic story has some kind of drama, some kind of problem. And so that's what we addressed last week, that it is sin. There was rebellion on the part of Satan and his angels that followed him. And then it filtered down to us through Adam and Eve, and we looked at that. But of course we know if there's a problem, there's got to be a solution. And so the whole rest of our story of Scripture really is about people that God created, we looked at that, to get reconciled with God. Because if sin is what separates us from a holy God, then what is the solution to that? If there's a problem, there's got to be some kind of solution. I mean, in life we're always looking for that, right? We know there's all kinds of problems. We solve problems every, every day, don't we? Some are small, some are big. Do you ever find yourself in a difficult or dangerous situation where you need somebody to help you? I mean, we've all been in those situations, sometimes maybe even life-threatening. I remember as, um, as a college student, my, my friend Tom and my friend Dave, we went out to this place, some of you remember, it used to be called Action Park. You remember that? I think it's called Mountain Creek now or something, right? And they have all kinds of rides and they have, you know, a, a big different slides and everything. We were so excited to go. We drove out there and, and the first thing we did is we jumped right into this thing they called the wave pool. It was a lot of fun, and you just like, they generate these waves, you go up and down, and it's a lot of fun. And so we weren't even thinking, and you know, as young guys do, right? And, uh, and we didn't calculate the costs and the risks, and so we just jumped right in. We were so excited to be there. We jumped right in, and we're splashing around. Of course, in these big wave pools, you ever see one of those? They've been in those, like they just generate these big waves. And it's a lot of fun, and people are bouncing up and down. And so we went right in, and we're right out in the middle swimming around, and it's great, but we didn't think about... Man, how are we actually going to get out of this? Is there going to be an issue? And so we started going up and down. We're like, okay, we're treading water for a while. But then after you tread water for a while, you kind of get tired, right? And so we see it's not too wide. And we see, okay, we're going to swim over to the side. But what happens in a wave pool when you're trying to swim? The waves keep kind of getting bigger and pushing you back to where you were. And so we're swimming, but we're not getting anywhere. Do you ever feel like that in life? Like you're, you're trying to get somewhere, you're not getting anywhere. And so now we're starting to get nervous. Do you ever been in that situation where you're like swimming, you're treading water, but then you're feeling like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to actually, you know, get to where I need to go. And you start to get panic a little bit, and that's the worst thing that you can do. And so now we're looking at each other, and we're starting to get really nervous. And we start blaming each other. Whose idea was this? This is your idea, you know? And so we start swimming for the side because they're sitting at the side is a lifeguard. It's a lifeguard there. And so we said, okay, good. And so we started swimming, but we couldn't get there. So we started waving our hands and yelling for help. We couldn't get there. Now, we felt so silly because here we are three, like, you know, young men, and we figured we could just swim a little bit, right, a few yards, but we couldn't get there. And so finally, we're, we're getting there. We're just going just enough so that the lifeguard could reach down, and one by one, he could take our hand and lift us up out of there. And we were so exhausted. And we had just gotten there. Boy, that was, that was no fun. That was the way we started our day of fun. But if you think about it, we were in a very dangerous situation. But we also believe God provided that lifeguard 
to reach down his hand and to rescue us. See, at the moment, we had no other choice. There was really no other choice. God gave us one opportunity, and he sent us a lifeguard, and he reached out. It was the only hand there to help us. Now, we didn't know if he was strong enough to pull us out. If, if we didn't know what kind of skills or qualifications we had. At the moment, it didn't matter. There was one hand reaching down, one opportunity, one provision. We reached out and we grabbed it. And he brought us to safety. See, so we all can, we, we can all relate to what it means to be in a dangerous or difficult situation where we need rescuing. And so that's what we looked at last week, that we are in a desperate difficult and dangerous situation because of our sin nature that separates us from God. But if that's the bad news, today's the good news. Amen? Today's the good news because we're going to talk about salvation. What does the Bible teach about how that situation is rectified? What's our part? What do we do in order to attain that? How is it that we're saved What are we saved from? What do we have to believe to be saved? All of those questions. And so there's words like redemption and reconciliation, propitiation, imputation. You hear those words in in this study of soteriology. And they they float around a lot. We're going to look at those in in different ways today. But there's concerns, uh, the key concerns in soteriology, the study of salvation, like is it by faith alone or do we have to add works to it? Uh, what's the idea of God's sovereignty and our free will? How do we reconcile that in, in the means of salvation? Uh, once you're saved, can you get unsaved? Can you lose that salvation? And what are we being saved from? And then simply, how are we saved? And so today we're going to focus on that last part mostly. Everything else will be kind of uh, discussed and addressed, but mostly the most important thing that we can look at when we talk about soteriology, the study of salvation, is how, how are we saved, right? and what do we have to believe? Or you can look at it this way. There is a um, condition. What's our condition for salvation? Like, what do we have to do? And then what's the content of, uh, of what we have to do? So, like, what do we have to believe? So, what do we have to do, and what do we have to believe? And you're going to see how that unfolds. So first we'll look at the problem and the provision, but then we're going to look at the promise. There's three words you'll see again at the end if you want to jot those down. There's a problem, there's a provision, and there's a promise. A simple way. I really want to try to keep things simple today because what more important message do we need to understand and then are we to give to others? Because remember, we are people of hope. Because we have that message of hope, don't we? And so we want to be able to share it and explain it and proclaim it in a very clear and concise way so there is no misunderstanding about what God's Word says about how to be saved. Titus 3, 5 through 8 is a good summary of this. Let's look at this. Titus 3, 5 to 8. Uh, It says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's after you have believed. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I would jot that down. You just jot that reference down, Titus 3, 5 to 8. If you're looking for a good sort of summary passage on the doctrine of salvation, sort of all in there. It talks about the role of the Holy Spirit, that it's not of our works, it's by faith alone, and what that promise is, which is eternal life and the assurance of having, excuse me, that eternal life. That's what we're going to look at today. Um, But what we're going to start with is this idea of the atonement. That's a word that you've probably heard before. What does atonement mean? Why is it important in our study of salvation? What does it mean to atone for something? Maybe it's a word we don't use a lot in sort of everyday language these days. But the atonement is really the means of salvation. And we'll sort of unpack what that means in a second. But the word atonement is important for us because it is the means for our salvation. That's why we use it in reference to Jesus Christ. Uh, You go all the way back to the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. These should be some familiar words to you. Surely he has borne our griefs. This is a prophecy from the Old Testament about Jesus. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You ever read that passage before? Isaiah 53 is an amazing chapter in the Old Testament. Make sure you jot that down. But it talks about what Jesus needed to do. Why did God send Jesus to us? To do what? What was that? Why was that so important? Now, next week in our whole series, we are looking at Christology or the very person of Christ. Remember, we didn't introduce him earlier in the story as one of our characters because as our main character, I wanted to save him until that Sunday right before Christmas because we look at the incarnation of God, meaning God in the flesh, God becoming man. And that's what we celebrate, of course, at Christmas time. But that's what this passage talks about. But if you notice, um, there's a lot of this uh, contrast between what he did for us in this passage. So let's show this passage again. I'm going to read it. Just notice all of the, the he and the us or the him and the us. You notice that? So let's read it again. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. See what I'm getting at? It's going to keep developing. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Isn't that beautiful? It's a perfect picture of what we mean by the atonement. That there was a substitute, the substitutionary atonement. We mean that Jesus Christ atoned for our sins, meaning that he did it for us. That's why I reference Isaiah 53. It's all about what he did for us. 
See that? I can't stress that enough. It's what Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus did it, so we didn't have to. That's the atonement, meaning that he was the substitute. It should have been us up there on the cross bearing the wrath of God. We talked about that last week in sin, that there is the wrath of God. There has to be judgment on disobedience, which is sin. That wrath of God towards us, Jesus took it on our behalf. A simple illustration is somebody taking a bullet for somebody else. You see it in the movies all the time. It's just a simple little you know, illustration. That that bullet is heading for somebody, maybe somebody that deserves it, I don't know, let's say. And somebody just gets right in the way and says, I'll take it for you. It's that idea. So Jesus is our atonement. He is the means of our salvation. And it is Christ and Christ alone. See, Christianity, as our faith in God, as our understanding of our relationship with Him, is very exclusive. Now that sounds like a bad word these days, doesn't it? Nobody wants to be exclusive. You want to be inclusive. But here, we say it's the Word of God. It's not us that's being exclusive. We're saying that Jesus Christ and Him alone is the only way to be reconciled to a holy God. It's no other man-made religion or faith system. It's no other person throughout history, just name it, who claimed to be some kind of Messiah. There is no other way to be saved except through Jesus Christ. And there is a, there is a foundational tenet of the doctrine of salvation. That's why we say it is exclusive. Now, we're also going to look at Jesus died for the whole world, for those that would believe and receive that. And so we'll unfold that this morning. But it's important to remember that we cannot approach the Scriptures and read it and come away with the idea that whatever you believe is fine, God will save everybody, and you know, and it's any which way to God. There's many roads to heaven. The Bible does not teach that. It's just the opposite. That it is Christ and Christ alone, and His blood and His blood only, that provides the atonement. See, he was the only one who ever lived who was perfect. Because if God is holy and perfect, and that is his, um, his judgment, and that is what he needs, right, in order to appease his wrath, that it's got to be perfection, if we as sinners are going to enter into his presence and relationship with him once again, then we need to somehow be declared holy, and the only person that can do that is God himself. So that's why Jesus had to be born. That's why we're looking at last the next week. That Jesus would be the only one who ever lived a perfect, sinless life so he could be that perfect Lamb of God that John the Baptist said, take away the sins of the world. And that is what soteriology talks about. All right. So let's look at a few other things. What's the role of the blood. We talked about that. Now, that's not like a fun word to say. There's a lot of churches, I mentioned this last week, they are continuing to shy away from even talking about sin because it's, all oh, that's a bad word. Or do you want to mention blood? Did you ever read the Scriptures? There's a lot of references to blood in there. You go all the way back to the beginning. We'll see that in a second. But there is the role of the blood of Christ in the atonement, meaning the means for salvation. See, salvation is a free gift to us, but it had to cost somebody something, and it cost Jesus everything. The expense was paid by Christ to make it free to us. 
I mean, there's a reason. Do you ever think about why we give gifts at Christmas to other people? It's not so we can keep all the stores in business, although that's actually what we do. <laughs> but we know it's to, to remember the greatest gift ever given to us. It's, a, it's symbolism. It's an act of kindness and love to say, God gave Jesus to me, and then I want to share that love and that idea of giving a gift. And so we do that around this time. So that's why it's important we remember Somebody is giving a gift, it costs them money to buy that gift. But when they offer you a gift, all, you don't just hand them money at Christmas and say, okay, how much for the gift? You just reach out and accept it. How do you do it? You receive it. And the scripture says we do that by faith. By faith. Okay? And that's what we're going to see, right, is our condition. What is the one condition? How are we saved? It is by faith and faith alone. Okay? So, getting ahead of myself there. So, it's why we have communion. Once a month here at church, we do communion. And we take the bread, we take the cup, which represents the blood of Christ. And Christ said at the Last Supper, he told us to do that until he returns in remembrance of him. But remembrance of what? In remembrance of the fact that he gave himself, his body and his blood, for us. That we would never forget it, but always remember. And so communion is symbolic in that it helps us remember as believers. It's not an empty ritual, but it is something that has great significance. It is highly significant to us because it reminds us of what it cost Jesus. Look at Acts 20, 28. Acts 20 says this. Um, it says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Okay, it's talking about uh, spiritual leaders in a church. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So what are the elders of the church supposed to do? Care for the church of God, which he obtained how? With his blood. See that? Then there's also Romans 5, 9. says the same thing. Since therefore we have now been justified, how? By his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So it is about the blood of Christ. If you're taking notes, there's other ones we won't look at. You can write down Ephesians 1, 7. Talks about the role of the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, 12. That's the one that says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Revelation 1, 5. And Revelation 12, 11. We have overcome by his blood. All those talk about it. Now, there's the role of blood in the atonement. What about the extent of the atonement? Now, again, I mention this, or at least I try to every week. There, of course, is so much, well, listen, there's so much that we can discuss and address in any one of these theological topics. I mean, you know, volumes have been written on these, and they have been studied and discussed and debated for 2,000 years and maybe longer for some of these other issues. And so, therefore, we cannot cover them in the, the time we have this morning, right? Now, some of you say, well, you go long enough. We probably could, but that's okay. Nobody's ever said that to me. And so, here, so I want you to, to remember this. A big part of what we try to do is cover the basics, the, the most important stuff, try to keep it simple, so that you can go and dig deeper on your own, get into the Word and research more about these theological topics. And why do I say that? This is a great example. Because what's the extent of the atonement? I mean, Jesus died. He shed his blood. He gave himself on the cross for us. And we recognize, as we said, that, that he is the only provision for us to be reconciled to a holy and perfect God. 
Okay? And so, we say, so Jesus died on the cross. Who did he die for? Just the people that will believe? People say the elect? Or did he die for the whole world? And so, okay, so we've all heard of Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism. Again, we don't have time to go through all that. But in, in, in Calvinistic the, uh, theology, which is sort of a, a, a way to systemize theology, systematize it, it will say that the atonement is limited. Have you ever heard of TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which is kind of the acrostic for that? The L stands for limited atonement. And so anybody that says that they are, say, Reformed, or say, we would say like uh, you know, Calvinistic in that sense and believe in all five of those, and some people say they might be four point, three point, some people are zero point, and we can't get into all that. But here's one of the sticking points for a lot of Christians. Did Jesus die only for the elect, meaning the believers, or did he shed his blood for the whole world? So it's either called, you either would believe in, in that sense, limited atonement, meaning he, his, his blood was shed only for the elect, or... It's unlimited, meaning he died for the whole world. So I'm going to focus on unlimited because that is what I believe. and That's what is espoused here at Trinity, that we believe that the atonement is unlimited, that he died for the whole world. And without being to reference all of the other scriptures that people that would would understand it differently, that it's limited. There's plenty of scriptures that they use for their support. I believe if you look at all of those in the right context, because context is is so important when you're reading Scripture. If you look at all in context, you will see it does not teach, I believe, that he died only for the elect. Okay, why is it important? Well, it's usually important because it's a debate that's been going on a long time. But we want to understand that salvation is uh, available for the whole world, that everybody is savable. Okay, that's the idea. So we say the atonement or the death of Christ on the cross, his um, substitution for us is unlimited. So, John 1, 29, John 3, 16, John 4, 42, they're all really important. Write those down. Some of you might know. How about this one? We'll show this one. Acts 17, 30. Acts 17, 30, right? Meaning that all people should believe. All people should repent and believe. How about um, uh, 1 John 2, 2 says this. That he died not only for our own sins, but for the whole world. John, uh, 1 John 2.2, 2, an important one to write down. 1 John 2.2. 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's, that's a big word, right? It means like he was our appeasement. Meaning that God accepted his sacrifice. Right? Like he appeased God's wrath. We'll show that again. And so 1 John 2.2. 2, and it says that, um, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of who? For the whole world. So he's saying, if this is to believers, which First John is written to believers, to Christians, then, for, then John is saying that he is the, um, the atonement, the propitiation, like his sacrifice was good enough, it appeased God's wrath, for not just our sins as believers, the ones who believe, but for the sins of the whole world. Which means the whole world is savable. You can write down 1 Timothy 4.10. That's another one to look at. And 2 Peter 2.1. 1 Timothy 4.10, 2 Peter 2.1. But the idea is simply this. The whole world is savable because of what Christ did. But then, of course, we get to what's our part? Well, we need to believe. 
or trust or place our faith in what Christ did. So because we say that he died for the whole world, it doesn't mean that the whole world's sins are automatically forgiven and everybody goes to heaven. Do you see the difference there? Because how do we, or we say appropriate, or how do we receive that free gift that's offered to everybody? Because his blood covers all of that, makes everybody savable. We do that by faith. That means to trust. The last thing about the atonement uh, from the New Testament. The atonement is complete. Why is that important? Because we can't add anything to it. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Just kind of file that away for a second. Christ is seated. That is highly significant. Revelation 3, 21. To one, uh, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We see Christ sitting over and over and over again. That is highly significant. And I'll tell you why. A look at Hebrews 1, 3, because I want to, after a look at Hebrews, I want to show you some Old Testament um, examples. I won't show you all the scriptures, but some Old Testament examples that what we call prefigure the atonement, or we say in the Old Testament, it showed us that there needed to be some kind of payment for sin. That's what I'll say in a simple way, okay? And so, but look at what Hebrews uh, 1, 3 says. He is the radiance of the glory of God, meaning Jesus, and the exact imprint of his nature, Okay, in his image. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the fact that he sat down meant that it was done. See, what rabbis did, we'll start with that. What rabbis used to do is they would stand up and they would read from the scroll. They would read from the scriptures, the Old Testament. And after they read... They would sat down. They would sit down, meaning the reading is done and complete. They would then sit down and they would teach. In Luke four, Jesus, we see, begins his earthly ministry, goes into the temple, and he stands before everybody. He reads from the scroll in Isaiah about how he has come to bring uh, sight for the blind, right, and, and, and to release the oppressed. Uh, from their chains to bring freedom, I'm paraphrasing. But he reads from Isaiah, and then it says in Luke 4, he rolls up the scroll, and he sits down. You know what he says when he sits down? And he says, this has been fulfilled today, like in your presence. Meaning that he fulfilled that scripture, and so he sits down to do it. Because sitting down for Christ means it is finished. It's completed. Okay? And so that's important. Why? Because if he said it's finished, of course he said it on the cross, didn't he? He said it is finished, which means you don't have to do anything else. Is that beautiful? That's why he said that. It is finished. He's saying, I have taken upon myself all of the sin of the world. And if you were to just believe and receive it by faith, it is all finished. It has all been done. You don't have to add anything to it. So we can say Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all. We can't add to it at all. You remember back in, uh, and again, I won't show you the scriptures, we'll move through it quickly, but looking at the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them, he took off the fig leaves and he covered them with animal skins when he kicked them out of the garden. Why? So that they could be covered, their sin would be covered and atoned for. It's a prefigurement of what had to happen with Christ. Where did God get those animal skins? 
he would have had to have sacrificed an animal, there would have been blood shed. You see that? Because what does it say in Hebrews again? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins all the way back from the beginning. That was in Genesis 3. Fast forward to Genesis 22. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham had prayed for, uh, for a child. God gave him Isaac, right? The beautiful child, the miracle child. And so he then says, you need to go sacrifice him. We know the whole story. And Abraham takes Isaac to sacrifice him on the mountain. He says, take your only son. Didn't he have another son, Ishmael? Remember him? Well, Ishmael, see, was born out of works. He was planned like, we're going to do this on our own. Remember all that? And so they had Ishmael. And so he does not consider Ishmael one of his sons or a son that was able to pay the penalty, to be sacrificed, to appease God, to be the atonement or the propitiation. And so Isaac, he says, God says, take your only son. And he offered him at Mount Moriah. There's so much symbolism in there. Isaac went willingly. He was old enough. He could have fought back. He went willingly. Didn't Jesus go willingly and not say a word? Right? But we also know that he was offered on Mount Moriah. Why is that significant? A thousand years later, after the Abraham and Isaac story, Solomon builds a temple. Remember David? King David wanted to build a temple. And God says, no, you're, you're a king of war. We're going to have Solomon, a king of peace, and he's going to build the temple. You know where he builds that first temple? Mount Moriah. What happens in the temple? Sacrifices are offered. So where Abraham was going to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and we know the story that God said through the angel said, hold it, and then there was a ram in the thicket. Remember that? What does that signify? God provided the sacrifice. Abraham didn't have to do it through Isaac. God provided the ram like God provided Jesus. You see that? It's a beautiful picture in that whole story. And so a thousand years later, we see that Solomon builds a temple right there. And what happens in the temple on that same mountain is sacrifices are offered to God to appease God. So that's under the, um, under the law, right? We see that's what happened. But then, of course, we also see what happens a thousand years later at the same place. Jesus is crucified. So that's what we talk about in the Old Testament being a prefigurement of what was going to happen. Then, of course, we know the Exodus story with the plagues. Remember with Moses? We've all seen the movie. We've read it and we know it. And so what was that last plague, right? That it was going to be all of the, uh, the firstborn of the Jews, supposedly, that were going to die. But no, of course, God turns that around. And what does he tell the Jews to do through Moses? Says, sacrifice a lamb, a spotless lamb. And what to do with the blood of the lamb? Put it on the doorpost so that their sin was covered, so that... Death would what? Pass over, see? Because of the blood of the Lamb. It's a prefigurement, a foreshadow of the need for the atonement of Jesus because he would then be that perfect Lamb, that final sacrifice. There's so much more in there. Even look at Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. One of the the high holy days uh, of the Jewish people that they still remember and celebrate. That prefigures Christ's atonement. Why? Because what would happen on the day of atonement? This is so cool, right? On the day of atonement, the, the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, okay, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they would, the, the, the high priest would go in and offer a sacrifice just that time to cover the sin of all the people, and he would go in. And he would offer that sacrifice, and it would cover or atone for the sins of the people for one more year. 
Because then the next year he had to go back in. Okay? To go back into the temple. Well, what do we see? So that's the day of atonement. Meaning like there is an atonement that is made. Alright? But, of course, the priest would go in once a year, sprinkle um, whatever he was doing on the Ark of the Covenant. The debt was postponed for one year. That is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. But see, Christ on the cross, we know what happened after he said it was finished. You remember he said the earth quaked. And the veil of that temple was torn in two so that now everybody could see into the Holy of Holies, a place that only the priest could go. Do you know if anybody else went in there or if the priest went in at any other undesignated time, they would die instantly? But see the reverse, Christ died so that now the Holy of Holies was open. So that we could then go in and be with God and have a relationship with God. And we don't have to go in and offer sacrifices because Christ did it once and for all for us. So therefore, it says Christ sits down where the high priest had to go in and stay standing and always go back year after year. Christ did it once and he sat down, meaning it was complete. It was finished. Do you know that all of the furniture and all the adornments in the temple, there is not one chair in the Holy of Holies. Because the priest was never done sacrificing on behalf of the people. But Jesus did it once and for all. And then he sat down. And he said, it is finished. Amen? We say amen. So he did it. It is finished. And then we're going to conclude with this. There's going to be a couple of slides up for you in just a second. Because I don't want you to miss it. So what's the condition of salvation? How are we saved? Believe. We believe. Believe. You can use the word believe or faith, or trust, they're basically synonymous. When the Bible says believe, and it says it more than 150 times, the condition of salvation is believe. It's not you believe and try to do enough good works. It's not that. You believe. What happens when you believe? You do two things. You accept as truth who Jesus is and what he said he was going to do. And then you put your trust in it for your eternal salvation, your own eternal salvation. Okay, that's what happens very simply when you believe. So the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You believe. It's not just what they call intellectual sin. It's not just knowing a bunch of facts about Jesus. I mean, do you have to believe that Jesus taught for three years? Do you have to believe that he was a carpenter? Do you have to believe that he had 12 disciples? These are all important facts about him and his ministry that say in scripture and we should believe but do you need to believe those things for salvation no what do we need to believe for salvation see if the condition is believe and believe alone or faith alone then what's the content of that saving faith what do we have to believe you'll see that in a second because that's so important what do we do we believe what do we have to believe well, we have to believe in a person for the provision. So the person and work of Jesus, you cannot separate out. So the person of Jesus, he claimed to be God. He leaves us no other choice. You remember the old saying, it may have been C.S. Lewis, I'm not sure, that said that he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Did you ever hear that? There's really no other options. Jesus is either a liar, and you shouldn't believe anything he says or does, He's a lunatic, he's a crazy man because he claimed to be God, or he actually is Lord. And therefore you owe him your life and your allegiance. There's really no other options. See, but Jesus claimed to be God. And so what do we do with Jesus? Everybody's got to reckon with the person of Jesus. because Everybody believes that he was an historical figure and that he lived. And he obviously he died, he's not still alive. 
So everybody believes that, and, and there's, no, you know, there's no argument that he wasn't a historical figure, but he was a real person that walked this earth, and he claimed to be God. He claimed that he prophesied that he was going to die for everybody's sin, that he was going to come back to life. And so when we say we believe, what do we have to believe? We have to believe in his deity, believe that he is God. So we believe in who he says he was, and we believe that he did what he said he was going to do. What did he do? He died, and he rose again. I'm going to keep that really simple, all right? And so that's the idea. Over 150 times in the Bible, it talks about believing or having faith alone. Lots of scriptures. John 3.16. John 5.24. Lots of others in John 6. You know what? If you want to share a book of the Bible with somebody that is searching, you're sharing your faith, would you just give them the gospel of John? Because the Gospel of John is the one that talks all about Jesus being God and the conditions for faith, the conditions for salvation. So send them to the Gospel of John. I mean, all the books have a different focus, but the Gospel of John is the one that you want to give to an unbeliever because it really is the only book or one of the only books, depending on how you read it, that was truly written for unbelievers. Almost all the other books in the New Testament were written to believers, to churches and to believers that Paul and Peter and the others wrote. But John, the Gospel of John, was written to unbelievers. And so it makes it very clear that the condition of salvation is faith alone and that it is in Christ alone and that Christ is God. He claimed to be God. So you believe, and it's believing only. You're not adding anything else to it because Jesus said it's finished. What do you believe? You believe who he is and that he did what he said he was going to do. So he is who he says he is. He did what he was going to do. He says he's God, so you believe it. And therefore, he says that he was going to die and rise again. And you believe it, and then you trust it for your eternal salvation. Not just theoretically for everybody, but you personalize it. And that's the important thing. So, we'll end with these two slides. If you could put the first one up, please. Here is, in a nutshell, what we see. All right? And so you see it up here. There's going to be two slides uh, kind of saying the same things. You can write down some notes. But if you want to understand what the gospel is, so you, so you understand your salvation and then how to proclaim it or tell it to somebody else, there is a problem, right? Or there's bad news. In order to understand the good news, you need the bad news, right? So what's the bad news? The bad news is that we are sinners before a holy God, Romans 3.23. And the other part of that bad news is that there is a penalty to pay for being sin. Sinful. You can't just say, well, you're a sinner. You're going to say, well, there's a cost to that. There's a price to be paid. There is a penalty for being a sinner before a holy God. Genesis 2.17, Romans 6.23. Okay? So there's bad news. The bad news is we are sinners. We are separated from God. We are sinners before a holy and perfect God. And there is a penalty for that sin. The penalty is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But now we don't just leave it at the bad news. That's why last week we talked about the bad news. Today's the good news. So what's the good news? Well, God provided Jesus to pay that penalty, Romans 5.8. So if the bad news is that we're separated from God and there's a penalty for our sin, the good news is that we don't have to do anything to do it to pay for the penalty. God provided Jesus as the atonement, the atonement for our sin, to pay that penalty. What else is the good news? That you can be saved, that you can receive that gift that he offers by believing. 
We receive that gift by faith alone. Again, it's either believe, faith, trust. You can use those words interchangeably. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your works that no one can boast, right? And what else is the good news? God wants you to know for sure that you are saved, that there is assurance. John 5, 24, 6, 47, 1 John 5, 13. I'm going to show you the same thing in one more way, and then we'll be done. Here's another way to look at it. So before it was, there's good news and there's bad news. And when we're done, we can put these back up for you. After we're done uh, with our, our message, you can leave it there. So there's, there's good news and bad news. Or you can look at it this way. I, I like this. It helps you remember it. There's a problem. There's a provision. And there's a promise. So what's the problem? Again, this is just different wording for the last slide. The problem is we are sinners before a holy God, and there is a personal penalty that we can't pay on our own. It's not some theoretical penalty. It's personal for us, for me and you. So that is the problem. That's the problem, isn't it? I mean, that's the dangerous situation I was talking about earlier. Romans 3.23 and 6.23. But there's the good news is that there's a provision that only God himself can pay it, because he's perfect and holy, and so the sacrifice has got to be perfect and holy. And he did in Jesus Christ, the, one, the only one who ever lived a perfect and sinless life. And the only one who did that, so it's, that's Jesus. And then he died and he rose again. Right? And so what's the promise then? If that's the provision, the promise is if you believe in that provision, you will be saved. The promise is if you believe in that provision, then you will be saved. You receive that free offer by faith alone, and then you can be assured that you have that promise for all of eternity. All right, the last scripture I want to look at, uh, and you need to write this down. Not the whole scripture, but the reference. It is 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. If you ever forget, you want to share the gospel, you need to be reminded of what's the gospel, where is there the clearest picture in the New Testament, in the Bible, about the gospel. Paul makes it so clear about the problem, the provision, and the promise. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And then he gives you the message. This is the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. That he was buried... And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Can you you show those once again? So look at this. It says, here's here's the gospel message. What did Christ do? He died for our sins. So built in there is the fact that we're sinners. Christ died. And what's the proof of that? It's in the scriptures. Okay. But he was buried, so there's the physical proof. So he died according to the scripture, biblical, the Bible says it. He died for our sins because we're sinners, and the Bible says it. He says according to the scriptures. And he was buried, so the burial is important because it proves that he actually died physically. So that's why Paul includes it. And also that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the scriptures. See, Paul says the scriptures proclaim it. So he died and he rose again. There is the content of saving faith. We believe that Jesus is who he says he was, he's God, and that he died and he rose again. The proof is that he was buried. If you would read later, it says that he appeared to more than 500 people. So again, his burial was proof that he died, 
that his appearances were proof that he rose again. You see that? So therein lies the gospel, the, 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 the essence of the gospel of saving faith, the gospel of grace, that there is a problem where sinners, Christ died, and according to the scriptures, he was buried to prove it, that he rose again according to the scriptures, and then later it says that he appeared to people as proof of his resurrection. Church, there's nothing more important than somebody's eternal destiny. Let's make sure we do not muddy the waters of the gospel or the doctrine or the understanding of salvation. Because every person that you meet every day is going to live forever. Did you know that? It's just a matter of, are they going to live forever with God or separated from him? You know what the Bible says? Separation from God is not just you know, living a nice eternal life and just God's not there. It talks about it as being hell. It talks about it as being uh, full of torture and torment and a conscious one at that. We don't want that for anybody. So let's make sure that what we, we understand what we believe and that when we then share the gospel and proclaim it, we are making it clear. There is a problem. There are sinners separated. We are sinners separated from a holy God, and there's a penalty for that. There's a provision. God made the provision himself. We don't do it. And the promise is, if you receive that provision by faith and faith alone, by believing, that you will then be saved and you can have assurance of that for eternal life. Is that not a beautiful gospel? It is. Uh, Let me pray for us and then we're going to have a a, a closing song to kind of wrap it all up. Okay, and bring this this whole morning, this whole idea of salvation in our position before God to, to a conclusion. Father God... Uh, we, we just can't overstate how amazing you are that you provided. We understand there's a problem, but you gave provision. You offered that provision in your son Jesus. And for that, we are forever grateful. Forever grateful. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that all we need to do is simply believe. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is God. And that he did what he said he was going to do. He died and he rose again. And God, we believe it and then we put our trust in it for our personal eternal salvation. God, help us to live that and proclaim it with those words for all the rest of our days. Because this world needs hope, God, and you are the only hope. This is the only gospel of peace and hope and love and joy. And may we embody it, may we reflect it, and may we proclaim it to the world in need. In Jesus' name, amen.